Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron by Zeno, read by Al Murray. Chapter 6 Bob Blake awakened under a gentle tugging at his smock sleeve, and looking up in the light of the false dawn, he saw a head hanging suspended over his own. He stirred slowly, his cramped muscles wakening more sharply than his mind, and it was the nagging complaint of his body which brought him to a more general awareness rather than the trunkless head whispering incomprehensible words above him. He eased his shoulders away from the clay and sat up. The movement unblocked his sleep-plugged ears, and the thrice-mouthed stand too registered as the head disappeared and Bilting slid away to the next section. Blake got cautiously to his feet and looked out from his slit trench, first to the two men manning the Bren and then to where Corporal Heibling's shoulders showed, hunched and still. Apart from the one he was in, there were five more slit trenches in the section position, three of them facing the north and two the open ground to the west. The last two served as his link with Lieutenant Ramsden's platoon. He started to crawl over to Heibling, and at the sound of his movement the corporal swung round, his sten half raised. Blake called his name softly, realising that Bilting had got to him and awakened him without Heibling or the two sentries being aware that he had come and gone again. Who's on stag? Jennings and Ewing. Change them with the regular Bren group. I'll wait the others. The section post became alive with the rustling of moving bodies, the whispering of subdued voices, and once the startled, immediately muffled curse of a man too rudely awakened. The Bren gun was tucked into the sharp angle of the road. It could fire into the grounds of the house opposite them and down the road to the right, enfilading any attack on Leyland's section. It covered the track to the north which ran away directly above the sharp bend in the road which carried it to the south and it could be swung round to cover the open ground in front of Lieutenant Ramsden's platoon. Most of the men in the slit trenches facing the dense cover to the north were armed with Sten guns. It was in this direction that their short range and rapid rate of fire would be most effective. The two weapon pits covering the open ground contained his riflemen. On the parapet of his own foxhole lay the captured MG42. Blake slid back into his own weapon pit. Ramsden's men had the happier position, with a 200-yard field of fire. They were more likely to attract mortar and artillery fire, but the company area was so confined that they would get no greater share of it than anyone else. Blake opened the straps of his haversack and took out his 48-hour pack, selecting the solid square lump of dehydrated oatmeal and resting comfortably behind the German gun. He nibbled at one corner. It was hard work and he ended by rubbing it against the biting edge of his upper teeth, using them as one would a nutmeg grater. His shoulders shook suddenly in silent laughter. The British pack was said to be better than the American by those who had eaten both, but this was his first experience of British dehydrated food, and now the Germans had cut off all the water supplies, perhaps he would never know what it was meant to taste like when prepared properly. They had been warned if they ate too much of the dehydrated food in its dry state and then drunk a quantity of water, the whole thing would swell up inside them and might burst their gut. 
Blake decided that long before a sufficient quantity of the food could be consumed, the consumer's teeth would have been worn down to the gums. He put the oatmeal away and unwrapped a boiled sweet. It had got darker, the hushed darkness that comes before the rising sun. Blake wondered what the day would bring, perhaps a divisional advance into the town and the securing of all their objectives, the relief of the 2nd Power Battalion on the bridge and the landing of General Sosobowski and his Polish brigade south to the river. Perhaps 2nd Army, spearheaded by 30 Corps, would keep their word and link up with the division. At midday, their 48 hours would be up. Perhaps the 1st Allied Airborne Army, under the command of General Boy Browning, would really turn left and face the German garrisons in the box formed by Utrecht, Rotterdam and Amsterdam, while the 2nd Army, reinforced by German divisions, poured across the North German plain to Berlin. Perhaps all or some of these things would happen. Perhaps none of them. Perhaps the wedges driven by the Germans between the force on the bridge and the battalions in the town and the remainder of the division would prove unbreakable and the 1st Airborne Division would fight its last fight in three separate pockets and be defeated in detail. Looking out at the damp, dew-encrusted trees in front of him and at the silvered grass in the open field to his left, Blake became aware that all firing had ceased and that an atmosphere of expectancy hung over the battlefields. Suddenly, and with certainty, he was convinced that this day, the third day, would decide the success or failure of the whole operation. They would break into the town in force or they would not. And if they failed, what then? The click of metal on metal away to his right brought the section sergeant's head round, and he saw that he could now make out the figures of Leyland's men as they strained their eyes into the lightening mist of the early morning. He wondered what Eric Leyland was thinking about. Had it been two years ago, he would have known for sure that his friend's thoughts would be concentrated on Sally and their boy. Now he was not so sure. The company, the war and the army, in that order, had succeeded in creeping into the marrow of so many of their unit that earlier loyalties had become displaced or of no consequence. Training and preparation, operations, the killing of Germans and the taking of objectives had become the be-all and end-all of their lives. They talked among themselves of after the war, but their voices lacked conviction. It was not so much that they believed the war would never end, as an uncertainty as to whether they wanted it to, whether they would know what to do if it did. Wounding and death, burning towns and rotting bodies, the stench, the carnage and horror of war, all of these became as habitual and acceptable as commuting on the 815. It was a life they now knew better, or more familiar with, than the earlier one. The Polish glider contingents would be landing later in the day, and Blake wondered if their landing zone would still be in the division's hand by the time they were due to arrive. It would not affect his own platoon. The Poles were to be brought in by Lieutenant Brown and his men. It became lighter. The rim of the sun would be above the horizon that was hidden from him by the houses of Oosterbeek and Arnhem. Away to the north, the machine guns opened up and the burst of shells sounded like maroons, heralding the third day. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. Their dead would not rise. How many dead had they? He had not had time to think about the casualties. Johnny Matthews and Lance Corporal Manning were dead. Edwards was certain to die if he were not dead already. Black and Jarvis were wounded, and Jim Nash and Muldoon were missing. Seven casualties within the platoon. It didn't sound so many, and yet they had occurred in two days without the platoon being in any real action. The platoon was much stronger than an ordinary infantry platoon because of its specialist role. It totalled over 50 men, a few of them had had to land from Company HQ aircraft, as the three Stirlings allotted them could only carry 16 men apiece. But even so, they had had one-sixth of their force put out of action within a little over 48 hours, 
and unless Second Army broke through and linked up quickly, the casualty rate must go up as the Germans brought reinforcements into action. Two figures darted across the road from Leyland's position, and Blake watched Lieutenant Bridgman and Bilting clamber over the fence ten yards to the left of the gate and head for the tall house. Within seconds, they were out of sight in the shrubbery. Bridgman and Bilting climbed through an open window into an empty room. They moved to the back of the house without meeting or being challenged by any of Sergeant Murray's section. They found two men armed with stens in the kitchen and the Bren group in the dining room. Bridgman met Murray coming down the wide staircase. He had been visiting the two snipers he had positioned in the roof and he was unprepared when Bridgman tore a strip off him for leaving the front of the house unguarded. Blake saw Bridgman return and stop where Leyland's men were dug in. It was light enough now for the watching section commander to see that Leyland's face, as he looked up and answered Bridgman, had taken on the strained, expressionless look it always wore when he was talking to the platoon commander. It was not mistrust, nor was it apprehension, and yet somehow it conveyed a little of both. Blake liked Bridgman, and Leyland was the closest friend he had made in the army. He found it difficult to understand why Eric, who got on so well with all ranks, seemed permanently to be on his guard when talking to this officer. Blake found it impossible to believe that Bridgman was unaware of Leyland's feelings towards him. Apart from his abilities as a soldier, Bridgman was no fool, and he judged character accurately and well. He could not help but notice Leyland's attitude. But he had never for one moment betrayed any resentment of it, and he had always shown a greater trust in Leyland's assessment of a situation than in that of anyone else. After stand-down, Bridgman went to Company HQ, and when he returned, called his own order group into the shelter of some trees behind the forward sections. I'll give you the good news first. There's not much of it. Just as we were leaving the CO, news came through that General Urquhart had got back to Div HQ. Alan looked round at the brightening faces. It was extraordinary how the absence of a commander created a feeling of insecurity, and just as extraordinary was the way in which the mere knowledge of his return brought about a new cohesion, a feeling that once again the reins had been taken up and that the division was now going somewhere. Second para are still holding out at the bridge, although they have only the north end. The 1st and 3rd Battalions, the South Staffs and the 11th Para are still fighting their way through the town, but they've met a lot of armour and suffered a lot of casualties. Brigadier Hackett is launching a brigade attack along the axis of the railway to secure the high ground at Kerpel and from there break into the northern outskirts of Arnhem. During the day, Mr Brown's platoon will be bringing in the Polish gliders and Mr Ramsden's platoon a supply drop. Our platoon will be holding the whole company area. Each section will be holding a platoon front. Sergeant Murray will have to be withdrawn from the big house to act as the only reserve we have outside Company HQ. I shall allocate your new positions as the other platoons move out. The section commanders went back to their positions and as he dropped into his slip trench again, Blake wondered why Bridgman had changed the normal routine of issuing orders. It was usual to give information about enemy strength and dispositions before proceeding to the intentions and objectives of their own troops. But Bridgman had omitted to mention the enemy at all.